The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. What does it mean to be present, to try and stay in the moment that you're in and not worry about the future or regret the past? It's something I've been trying to do for a long time. I'm Diane Ray, and I have always had questions about the big picture. God, life after death, spirituality, metaphysics, and what drives people to do what they do. And I like to ask them about it and learn from it. If you're a seeker like me, I hope you join me for some of these conversations on the podcast and be present with me in this moment. Thanks for joining the show today. I really appreciate it. I know you have a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts, so I just want you to know I'm really, really grateful that you're listening. I like to share information on this podcast that I think will be helpful and useful to all of you out there. So I hope you stick around today because the conversation is going to be really timely. So people tend to think that I am a chill person for the most part. So you might be surprised to know that I come from a long line of anxiety-ridden worriers. My mother and grandmother were world-class worriers, and my sister and brother have followed suit. They're both anxiety-ridden. They usually call me to dump their anxieties on me. That's just our family dynamic. I think my father just learned not to really show it, and maybe I take after him a little bit. So it's kind of interesting, the family dynamic on anxiety and worry. But I think I have some tools that I've learned to help me deal with it. So maybe that's given me a little bit of an edge. And after 11 years of working at Hay House and learning from some of the best, I guess I've extrapolated some of their wisdom. But I don't think I have it figured out far from it. And the past few years have been the most stressful and anxiety-ridden for me personally, launching a podcast network, trying to build a business, working with a business partner. All of these things are new experiences for me. So I don't know what's going on half the time. And I'm really an old rock DJ at heart. So I go by the adage of fake it till you make it. So I'm working on that, you know. So in addition to all of that anxiety, not to mention the economic stress that we're all under, the anxiety of no money, the political climate we're in, the environment, the climate change, everything else, it's easy to get overwhelmed. Believe it or not, anxiety has risen by more than 25% worldwide since 2020. So we're not alone. We're an anxiety-ridden society. More people are taking drugs for insomnia and anxiety, and the pandemic didn't help that number either. So thankfully, my guest today, Dr. David Rosmarin, is coming to the rescue, and he's going to help us with all of this anxiety with some great advice and strategies from his new book. And I've been spending a lot of time with this, and I, I highly recommend it. He has some great ideas we're going to talk about. The book is Thriving with Anxiety, Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You, Available at bookstores everywhere October 17th. 
And Dr. Rosmarin is the founder of the Center for Anxiety in New York. He's an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and director of the McLean Hospital Spirituality and Mental Health Program. He's helped thousands of people learn how to live happier and more productive lives and has taught people to overcome the stigmas associated with anxiety by embracing all of our human emotions. And I'm really excited to talk to him today. So welcome, Dr. Rosmarin. How are you? I'm doing great. And I'm excited to talk to you also. So should I call you, can I call you David or should I call you Dr. Rosemary? No, the doctor thing makes me anxious. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, let's start off, you know, chill and I'll call you David and and that'll, that'll work out great. You've arrived in the nick of time. Your book offers some great strategies to handle anxiety and to learn how to thrive. And I love that you say all of us can benefit from the information in this book not just people who identify as anxious, but the various degrees in between, because we all fall into that category at some time. And as I got into the book, you divide people into four groups, flourishing, languishing, distressed, and severely distressed. And we can move between these groups at at different times. Now, this made a lot of sense to me as I was reading this. And you've seen people fluctuate between all of these categories, right? So somehow we fall in that scale. And across the board, people have anxiety. People who flourish, who start new podcasts and do new great things and start new businesses or seasoned executives still have anxiety. This is a human emotion. I think in our day and age, we have turned it into a disease. We have turned it into something to fear. And we have to change our relationship with anxiety, which is what the book is about. But across the board, whether people are flourishing or languishing or whether they're distressed or severely distressed, this is something that touches all human beings. And uh, my approach is about really changing our relationship with anxiety. When we get anxious, what's our narrative? What do we think about? Is it something that we judge ourselves for and get upset? Or is it the kind of thing that we actually realize is just part of the human condition, no matter how well you're functioning day to day? You believe we can... Thrive from Anxiety, as the title of your book says. And you also say that anxiety can be a great motivator. What did you mean by that? Well, um, there are a couple things. You know, anxiety shares the same brain circuitry as fear. And fear is an inborn, healthy response that people are programmed with to keep them safe when you have a real threat in your life. Now, hopefully it doesn't happen too much in throughout the course of however many years a person has. But um, there might be once or twice and potentially more than that, that people really need to have that adrenal surge um, uh, of adrenaline into their bloodstream in order to fight, flee, or freeze in order to protect themselves. Now, anxiety is the same exact thing. It's a natural, healthy process. The only difference is that it's unnecessary. So it's occurring when you have a you know, you perceive there to be a threat, but there isn't really a threat. But really, it's an indication that the person's just mobilizing your resources to be able to face whatever's in front of you. Uh, it might be an excessive response, but hey, the way I like to put it is, I'd prefer to have an alarm in my kitchen, a, f- a fire alarm in my kitchen that's a little too trigger happy than one that's not going to sense it at all if there were a fire. You shared a great statistic in the book that we're in a new age of anxiety And I thought this was crazy when I read this, that in fact, normal, healthy children in the United States today have higher levels of anxiety than people who were hospitalized in psychiatric hospitals in the 50s. It's true. And that's really true? It is true. And the reason why is because today, 
Well, I'll go back to the 1950s. You know, the 1950s, we were just coming out of the Second World War, and there's incredible devastation. We were moving into, you know, the Korean War at the time, and and there was incre- incredible social upheaval and economic uncertainty. I mean, it, it hadn't been that long since since the 1930s, really. Yeah, you know, people were, still had the Great Depression, and their parents grew up, and, you know, people were still heard stories about it. There was a lot more uncertainty then. And people were used to having anxiety. It was just a part of life that you come home and you work and you, you're sort of pushing hard at, at work and with your family and trying to you know, rebuild the country after war. And it's not going to be easy. And today, if we have small levels of anxiety, our immediate response is something's wrong with me. I don't know why I'm weak. Why is everyone else functioning so well? Look at how they look on Instagram. And here I am, you know, plagued with anxiety and that judgment of oneself. The interpretation of anxiety as a disease feeds into the anxiety and makes it worse to the point that we are seeing that social process having very significant clinical implications. And you're saying that we need to interpret our anxiety not as something to overcome, but as something that can potentially enhance our lives. And that's really flipping flipping the switch on how we think about anxiety that it can actually be something that can enhance our lives. Yeah. Well, it starts off by understanding first that it's normal and not fighting it. Now, once we've accepted that this is a normal human process that essentially everybody has at some point, some degree of anxiety. Now the question is, how can we actually use this to our benefit? And that's really, really the meat of the book. The main message of the book is anxiety is not a bad thing. This is something that, of course, it can be debilitating, but that's because of primarily our response to it and our interpretation of it as catastrophic and something that's um, a sign of illness when it's not. Once we've accepted that anxiety is going to be there in the background, you're going to have it, you can do a lot of good with it. And that was really the point that you were making throughout the book, I think, is that there's nothing wrong with us for having anxiety. Definitely not. So we, we should- only ex- people I know who don't have anxiety are dead. Right. <laughs> That's true. That makes makes so much sense. They they've shifted off the mortal coil. They're relaxing. They they don't have to worry about it. So yeah, if you're living in this world, it, you know you're you're going to be anxious. You're going to have anxiety. So it made me think. Another thing you stated in the book that I, I thought was was really true. Our culture just cannot tolerate anxiety. So I wanted to ask you, what would you think if someone from the 1800s time traveled to the future now? and discussed what they were anxious about. Would they laugh at us for our anxieties, you know, when they face disease, you know, traveling the wagon trail, fighting for food, um, hostile, whatever. I mean, it seemed like when you look back in history, their anxieties were much greater than ours, right? What do you, what do you think they would exercise. think? What an awesome question. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you in modern terms what I think would even happen. You know, if you look at at low-income countries, the level of anxiety nationally is half that of middle-income countries. And if you look at middle-income countries, the the levels of anxiety nationally are half of what we have in high-income countries. So it turns out that um, what you're seeing is very true, that the more adversity that people face day to day, the more they recognize, the more we recognize that uncertainty is a part of life. Now, in our society today, there are certain things we can't control, like the weather, like politics, for the most part, certainly not on an individual level, like um, you mentioned the economy at the beginning, 
And those things are so unmooring because we have so much that is within our control. We're all walking around with these incredible devices, right? These uh, uh, electronic appendage, appendages, I like to call them. And they give us such a sense of being able to contact people in multiple time zones and to have control and manipulation and to be able to get so much data in, 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 in nanoseconds that we're not used to living with things that we don't know, the things that are uncertain. But the reality is that life is all, certain aspects of life are always going to be uncertain. So I think that the conversation would be like, you're worried about that. You have so much more certainty than I ever did. And I'm less anxious. That would probably be what the 18th century, 17th, 19th century, whatever it is, person would say to people in our generation. And I think they'd be right. <laughs> I think they'd right. Be right. I, I think about that sometimes. I wonder what would happen if someone like Ben Franklin, who was a great inventor and thinker in his time, would come back and see these devices we're walking around with and how they are actually causing us more anxiety, even though we're connected to all of this great information and they can be a wonderful help and tool, but we still, it seems like the device has mastered us. We haven't really mastered the device. I think that's true. I would go one step further though and say, if we're going to live healthily, in the modern era, we need to find areas of uncertainty in our life, which are available, and to embrace that, that certain things are just beyond human control, and that's okay. That's always been the case throughout all of human history. There has never been a generation, in fact, that had more control over their lives than Americans in the current day. But there are certain things that we can't, certain things that are beyond our ability to manipulate, and that is, there's a humility that comes along with that. When we face that and accept it and embrace it and move into it, the anxiety is something that actually makes us more humble. It makes us more relatable and it makes us um, happier and more appreciative of, of, uh, of the good that we have. Here's some good news from the book. You say that anxiety is a positive sign of high intelligence. That seems it sure is. <laughs> It that sure seems is. positive. So yeah. the more the more intelligent we are, the more uh, anxiety we're having? Often, and I'll tell you why, people who are anxious are usually very quick to get their gears, their, uh, you know, their cognitive gears running. What's going to happen? What could happen? I'm going to prepare for three, four, five you know, potential scenarios. Now, at a certain point, obviously, there's diminishing returns, and that can become obsessive and very problematic clinically. But the actual anxiety does motivate a person to take action, to move forward, to um, think about uh, what are the possibilities that might happen. And for those reasons, we do see on certain intelligence tests um, some, some differences in people with anxiety. So I want to get into the real problem, I guess, that I hear from people that are really suffering from anxiety, and, and that's panic attacks. So let's talk a little bit about panic attacks, something that's been described to me by friends and family members, and I've not really experienced it to the extent that some people have, but I can I can relate to the fear. And, and probably the closest I've experienced to a, a panic attack was a few, a few years ago, I was on a, a very small plane and I kind of have some claustrophobia anyway, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm able to talk myself out of it most of the time. And right before this plane landed, I was squeezed in and I thought, this plane is going to crash. I need to get off this plane right now. Like I felt this premonition that this plane was going to crash. And 
I wrestled with the idea, you know, you could get off, you could drive to Tampa, it would be a couple hours <laughs> and you could be there much quicker on the plane. And I felt this wave of panic, but I, I kind of, I talked myself out of it and I did actually stay on that pedal jumper, even though it was like a, a wow. shaking tin can the whole time. And then when I read the book, I, I kind of used one of your, one of your techniques sure. really to, to, talk myself out of it, really look at the fear. Like, is it really going to happen? Is this plane going to crash? It could, but it probably won't. But I mean, someone who has an extreme panic attack, they're sure. going through the pounding heart, heart pounding fear. They think they're going to die. They're having a heart attack. And, and physiologically, I guess, could you just tell us like, what is really happening? You describe it so well in the book. People Thanks have so to much. read this because it really makes a lot of sense. I'll take you What's through going on? I'll take you through it step by step. First of all, we have to understand that 90% of Americans at some point will have at least one panic attack. Now, and sometimes it's acute in a situation such as what you had and on the plane and, and admittedly going on a, you know, in a Cessna is, uh, you know, it's never a, never a, pl a pleasant experience. Um, and usually not, <laughs> it can definitely be anxiety provoking. So that's a, you know, a, a sort of a rightful, uh, rightful cause for panic, but it could be, you know, we're speaking in public or it could be out of the blue. Sometimes people have panic attacks out of the blue. And in many people, in about 2 to 5% of the population, that actually becomes recurrent and it occurs multiple times. And the reason is because they get afraid of the physical symptoms. And the minute they start to have those physical symptoms, they get anxious about it and it makes it worse. So just to describe panic, people start out having physical symptoms of anxiety, including feeling hot, having their heart race, feeling dry in their mouth, having their breathing, feeling, you know, need to more, need to more air, feeling, you know, sweating, unexplained sweating. Uh, sometimes people feel dizzy or tingling in their extremities. And these are healthy bodily processes because what's happening is your body is responding to a perceived threat and it's triggering adrenaline, which is now going through your bloodstream. The blood, the, when that happens, when adrenaline goes through your bloodstream, it will increase your breathing and increase your heart rate because it's mobilizing you to, to, to engage in the fight or flight response, flight, fright, flight, fight, flight, or freeze response as it's called today. And that is a healthy process. The, the only issue is that it's happening when you don't need it. So it's an unnecessary, but very healthy process. The, the issue we interpret it as negative and then that actually pumps more adrenaline into your system which means that the symptoms get worse. And then when the symptoms get worse, you think, oh no, now I'm really having a heart attack or dying or something's really wrong with me. And then the symptoms get worse. And that cycle is really what perpetuates panic. What's the best thing to do when you panic? Take a Xanax. No. no I'm kidding. <laughs> Although I will say you're not completely... I like that you're not an, total anti-pharma anti in the book. Like some people are very hardcore, but I think your approach is very, very practical that you might need medication in an, in an extreme case 100%. and, and maybe not. Panic is probably my least favorite. And I'll tell you why it's because it, it takes all the anxiety out in the minute as a, as opposed to, as opposed to other medications, which will reduce anxiety in the long run. And that's a little bit, that leaves some room for people to be able to experience anxiety. What I was going to say is the best thing to do is to what we say, let it ride. Right. Because if you accept the anxiety and let go, you're not going to feed the adrenaline. If you fight the anxiety 
and say, I have to stop, I have to get off the plane, you actually are perpetuating the anxiety because the more you fight against it, the more adrenaline gets released into your bloodstream. So the, so the best way to do it is to say, I'm going to panic for as long as it's going to be. Take a breath and let it happen. Eventually, your body has a natural response called the rest and digest system, which opposes the fight and flight, fight, flight, and freeze. The rest and digest system will naturally happen. It just might take a couple minutes. And if you want to trigger that response, let go. Lean into the panic. And Which is we- so counterintuitive, right? So counterintuitive. <laughs> but I love that. In, in the book... I was, I just want to tell everybody that is the great news. I think that people need to understand is your body wants to help you Yes, and it will not last forever. And if you could tell yourself, because I remember the little conversation I had, this plane's going to crash. No, no, it's a, you know, it's not, I mean, my, it, my body did take care of me and I was able to calm myself down. It, it will not last forever. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. I have, you know, Center for Anxiety today sees a thousand, more than a thousand individual patients with anxiety every year. At least 10% of them have significant panic attacks. Take a guess how many patients we have seen who died because of their panic. None. Never. And all (laughs) of my colleagues who have anxiety clinics, who also have thousands of patients who they've seen, their clinicians have seen. In multiple countries, it's not just here in the northeastern United States. It happens in California, it happens in Canada, you name it. Patients don't die because of panic. By the way, I'll prove it to you. When you went to get your license, they asked you about your corrective, if you if you wear corrective lenses? Yes. Did they ask you about uh, neurological conditions such as epilepsy, which might, uh, you know, cr- uh, make it hard for you, make potentially faint or whatever it is, uh, you know, seize yeah, during I'm that. pretty sure they did. For sure they did. Almost yeah. every state does. Did they ask you about panic? No, they did not. I know they didn't because there isn't a state in the union that does. Why? Why wouldn't they ask you about panic if it's dangerous? That's true. You would think, especially driving, you're hurtling down the road in this thousands of pounds of yeah. steel. <laughs> you know that it's it's anxiety ridden. Just thinking about it. Just thinking about it, and you know what the answer is? That you're going to live. You're going to live because people who have panic attacks on the road don't crash their cars. It's not a risk factor. In fact, you're actually a better driver when you're panicking because you're more aware of your circumstance and your fight or flight system is engaged. You're hypervigilant. That's so Correct. interesting. Correct. Wow. Correct. So I've been driving but- phobia exposures with patients who are panicking in the car. I'm calm as a whistle. I know they're like, <laughs> I'm totally calm. And they're really having a hard time. And I'm not nervous. I'd like to see that. Crying. I'm really I not bet, I bet you're good in a zombie apocalypse too. You would be the you would be I'll the perfect. You, you know, I'll tell you what makes me nervous is when I'm in the car with somebody and they're checking their phone or they're distracted or if they're tired and nodding off. That's dangerous. Yes. If they're not anxious, that makes me nervous. But if somebody's anxious in the car, God bless. I mean, that's fantastic. That's a good point. See, you're putting this positive spin on anxiety that hopefully will 
really make the listeners of, of this podcast less anxious. Well, I hope so. And it is based on data as well. So I'm not, you know, I'm not just making it up. <laughs> no, I trust you. You've, you've got the cred. <laughs> I, I believe you. And the other thing I, I wanted to bring up about that I learned from the book, which I think is so great, is the distinction between anxiety and stress that I think people totally miscommunicate or get mixed up or they they just are not really understanding. And your explanation was so great. Anxiety is when people have a fear reaction that is disproportionate to the actual level of threat. That's anxiety, right? right? Now, stress is when you have an excess of life demands and a lack of help and resources to meet those demands. I read that. Wow, this makes total sense to me. So (laughs) I'm really just stressed out and need a vacation and need to go to Italy and drink Aperol spritz instead of what I'm doing now. Makes sense. So I I think that explanation was was really great. It's the first time I'd read that where it really made a good distinction between the two. I'm glad that was helpful to you. And I think, uh, you know, just to clarify, some people do have anxiety and stress. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. Because um, (laughs) not only are they uh, just trying to meet the demands of life, which are challenging, but they also worry about things that uh, they don't need to worry about. And those two can interact with each other. So uh, the, the, the tools in the book are, are helpful for really, really for both. Um, right. For stress or anxiety. Or anxiety. And there's, there's nine strategies that you present in the book and, and we probably won't have time to go through, through all of them, you know, but just to talk about things in a, in a general sense, I think that some of the things you suggested are really kind of common sense, like taking care of yourself, getting more sleep, eating better, you know, recognizing that those things are lacking in, in your life, that, that, that that's a deficit. I mean, those are easier things that you can do than just getting a, another prescription of something. Well, you know, they're easy to do, but they're also, I'd say they're simple to do, but I don't know if they're easy. And uh, often when people feel anxious, I'll just put it this way. When people feel anxious, often they double down and they start to work harder and they um, don't want to feel anxious and they'll distract themselves with their phone. When really what they need is two weeks of a reasonable night's sleep. I've had patients who came into my office who were plagued with anxiety and they would stay up late at night because they didn't want to feel anxious. And when they started to fall asleep, their anxieties would bubble up. And what I trained them to do was to be accepting of their anxiety, not to fight it and to go to bed on time. I kid you not. I can't count the number of times that after two weeks of this strategy and this strategy alone, That simple act of trying to let go in the evenings, not fight your anxiety, and go to bed on time, have a reasonable night's sleep. Two weeks later, people are feeling like a different person, and we can start to tackle the real issues that they're facing. It makes such a big difference. It's simple, but it's not so easy to implement. And some people, by the way, they can't get to sleep, even with that acceptance, and they need other strategies. Um... Um, or pharmacology, for that matter, you know that that there might be certainly be a, co- a cause and 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 a need for that as well. Right. So you just look at the whole at the whole person and see what they would need. But sleep, there's so much great research out now about how important it is, how much you need. And I I know talking to people, sometimes it seems like they have a badge of honor that oh I can I just need four hours of sleep I I can do this. Yeah, and you know, we're seeing needs four hours of sleep. So that's a statistical <laughs> aberration to the point that I my eyebrows go up like mm, no, <laughs> right? No, <you> know. <laughs> 
And I value my sleep now so much. I have to create my room as the sanctuary. I put my phone in the bathroom so that I'm not you. you know, looking at it. I do still have a TV in the bedroom. That's probably a no-no, but, you know, baby steps. I'll tell you an insight <laughs> which, I was, which came to me as I was writing this book. A lot of dealing with anxiety is letting go and leaning into it and not fighting it and accepting that it's part of life. Sleep is actually the same psychological process. I don't know about you, but at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night, whenever I go to bed, I still have a to-do list, right? And yes. For sure, Almost everybody still has stuff that they're going to do. And I have to accept that I'm not going to get it done for the next seven or eight hours. That's There's a discipline there that of letting go, of accepting that I'm just human. There's only so much that I'm going to be able to accomplished during my day, during my week, during my life. And that's part of anxiety. That that inculcates the message of acceptance in our lives. Um, I think that might be one of the psychological reasons why, in addition to the physiological reasons, why sleep is such an effective tool for dealing with anxiety. I love that message of acceptance and self-compassion that you share in the book. And I've used that very thing a lot. I mean, I, I mentioned most people that are listening to this podcast or know me a little bit know that I, I worked for 11 years for Louise Hay. It was like the queen of positive affirmations and things like that. And and one of the things I've always tried to remember is when I wake up at three or four in the morning, which I do a lot of times, I have no money. That check's going to bounce. I'm going to be on the streets. I'm going to become a bag woman. You know, then you go and you talk about the the positive spiral and the the anxiety spiral. And I, I really want people like to, to read this in the book. You know? So you go down that, that negative spiral. And I just did this, I think a night or two ago when I was up in the middle of the night, that check's going to bounce. I have no money. I'm a, I'm a failure. I can't, you know, all, all this. I don't even want to tell, I don't even want to admit that I think those things, but I'm, I'm, I'm laying it out here for you, doctor. Cause I, I feel, I feel I can tell you this, but I, I said to myself, it's four o'clock in the morning. You cannot do anything about this right now. Go to sleep. Just let it go. And I did, but I had to tell myself to let it go. It's such a discipline to be able to do that. And uh, um, I think it's great that you're laying it out also. You know, one of the strategies in the book, which uh, we probably won't have too much time to talk about, is speaking about your anxiety to someone else. And it's amazing how it connects you. I remember the conversations I have with people when I shared my difficult feelings and when they shared theirs. And when we're just talking about like what has to get done, honestly, those fade into the background and I couldn't care less at the end of the day. But right. those emotional points of emotional connection, when I'm really bearing my soul and being vulnerable and opening up and saying, hey, I'm, you know, I'm the head of an anxiety clinic. I still have a really hard day once in a while, which is totally true, by the way. You know, doing this book has been anxiety provoking, but I think it's in a good way because it's sort of enabled me to be more, more vulnerable and more real with the people who I love. Well, I like that you shared your story in some of the excerpts in the book and also with your patients and people that you've worked with. I love reading case studies. I love to read what other people have experienced because I, I learned from them. And I like that you're talking about moving through anxiety and facing your fears. I don't know if you remember this book that came out in 1998 by Susan Jeffers called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Are you familiar with title. that? I'm not, but what a great title. I got to look that up. You should check it out. Feel the fear and do it anyway. It was a very popular book. A lot of people loved it, but then a lot of people pushed. There was some pushback on it too, because they were saying, 
oh, this is torture because basically she was talking about what you call exposure therapy, exposure therapy. right? Feel the fear and do it anyway. Right. And, and I've always, when I look back on things that I've always been afraid of, I've always felt the fear and then tried to do it anyway. Like even back the first time I, I moved from Florida and I accepted a job in Texas mm-hmm. and I was terrified, feel the fear and do it anyway, until I drove out of the Florida state line. And I was like, woohoo, I'm going on to this new great adventure, you know, getting out of my, my old neighborhood. So I, I tried to overcome it or even coming out to California the first time I drove from Florida to California and I was feeling the fear the whole way, you know, gripping the steering wheel. Right. So what I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because I was thinking back in that old book and then what you were talking about of people freak out. You mentioned a guy in, in the book that was afraid of heights and you told him, go and look over the edge of the tallest building. Yeah. And he said, I can't do that. I'm going to, you know, basically crap my pants. There's no way. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. <laughs> yeah, and I thought I thought that was funny when I read that. So tell tell me a little bit of how you feel about dealing it's with anxiety and fear that way. And do it anyway, but there is a risk, and the risk is that we're white knuckling it the entire way, and we don't actually accept our anxiety. We're just getting through it and waiting to for the situation to end, as opposed to can really confronting the anxiety. And what I convey to people is: yes, feel the fear, and yes, do it anyway, but don't forget to feel the fear. Because it's really a matter of allowing yourself to feel anxiety, to really lean into it and to accept it, not to fight it, to um, move towards it and to be present really to the two, you know, to be present when you're feeling anxiety and to be mindful of it um, as opposed to fighting it, not just do it anyway and get it over with. You know, if you're, if your goal is just to go up to the building, okay, I looked around and I'm done, you know, and no, that, that, I mean, it's a, it's a step, but it's not what we're looking for. What I really want is my patients and myself to learn to feel overwhelmed and to be okay with that, because that's what every once in a while we're human, like we're going to get overwhelmed and that's how we build our emotional muscles. Just how in the gym, you build your physical muscles by going against the, 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 the strain and pushing through and we like that process because it releases endorphins. The same thing happens with anxiety. We need to, to increase our emotional fortitude through facing and accepting the anxiety as opposed to fighting it. So it's more than just doing it. It's really feeling the fear. Um, so that's what I would say about that. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And and you share some great stories in the book, like the, the woman that had the deathly, she was deathly afraid of spiders. And it, it took a uh, while I mean, for her to overcome uh, that. I mean, you didn't throw her in like fear factor, you know, throw no, her into no, 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 a no. vat of spiders. No, no. She came to every spider herself. I mean, I, I brought them to her. Don't get me wrong. I and mean, we, we certainly, um, you know, uh, brought the spider wrangler into the office, but, but she approached the spiders when she was ready and she did courageously. And she's a different person today. She's a different so person you've today. really seen some amazing transformations when it's, people are, it's are, are willing to be uncomfortable. Do you think we're just so spoiled that we just don't want to feel uncomfortable? <laughs> I wouldn't say, it. you know, some people have said that. And uh, my one comment is that it's not our fault that we're spoiled, so to speak. We, we're, we're living in a generation with incredible opulence, with incredible opportunity, with incredible technology. And I think that um, anybody living under such conditions would become very allergic to uncertainty and to a lack of knowledge. Um, and it makes sense that we have an anxiety epidemic. Um, however, 
um, in order to overcome it, in order to reset uh, the balance and to move in the right direction, I do think we have to embrace the opportunities of uncertainty and anxiety when they present themselves. Fortunately, they do. We're all human. We're all going to feel anxious and overwhelmed sometimes. We just need to take those opportunities in order to strengthen our emotional resilience and move forward. I love your whole approach in this book. I I really think it's going to help a lot of people. I mean, what are some of the things that you do to practice self-compassion or when you're feeling an anxiety or panic attack or stress? Yeah, my my go-tos are a couple of things. One is that when I'm feeling anxious and I'm feeling really stressed out, that's not a day to start a new project. You know, as you can imagine, a lot of new opportunities and projects come my way all the time in the academic world and also in my you know clinical world and, and now with writing. And um, I like to start new projects. They're exciting and they're invigorating. But when I'm stressed out, like that day or that week, they get tabled. It's not happening. Like I'm going to a ball game. I'm gonna I'm gonna get tickets and go to you know see the Red Sox with my with my kids or with my with my with my wife or whatever it is. I also try to open up to my family more. You know, I, I didn't always used to do this, but it's something that I've learned the importance of actually being real with, um, certainly with my wife and saying, hey, I'm having a really hard day today. And, you know, and, and she, she, she'll catch me. Um, and there are a couple of other friends who I can really be open and raw with. And that really helps. And the, the most important thing, though, is just to know that, like, just because I study anxiety doesn't mean I'm impervious to it. It just it means I might have a couple more tools in my toolkit, but I can't judge myself. And I used to. I definitely used to judge myself for whenever I felt anxious or panicked because like, if this is my profession, it seems like it's a contradiction, but it's not. It's just part of being human. And once I realized that and learned to use the tools to accept that and to not fight it, well, that was, that made all the difference. That's probably my most, most important strategy personally. Then life became easier. And what about a spiritual practice? I sure. mean, I've, I've tried to incorporate some things over the years, you know, to learn a meditation practice. I take a lot more walks now than yeah. I did before. I try to, I try to give myself time. I, I probably should give myself more time, more rest time, but do you have any of those strategies in your kit? Yeah, I'm, I have uh, a number of them personally, and also things that come up in clinical practice. You know, to me, I'll speak broadly about this. And in the book, it's it's more uh, granular and nuanced because there's a whole third of the book that's dedicated to this um, this area. But the specifically, you know, to me, um, engaging with the world of spirituality is about recognizing that human beings are not in control all the time and we were never meant to be. We are active participants in this world, but large many of the factors that shape our the main things in our, our our life, like when and whether and where to be born, are not something that we choose. We have choice within the circumstances that we emerge, but uh, and we can act on that choice, and we many we do every day. But at the end of the day, how much is really within our control? So to me, spirituality is about recognizing that we're just human. And um, we can be active participants and we should be, and we should try to make the world a better place. But at the end of the day, there are limits on how much of how much we can really do. And, uh, and I think we need to accept that. And that's sort of what a, a variety of different spiritual practices that I have, they all get at that main message. Right. We're just human. Do you ever think that we're little blips, specks like Horton Hears a Who? in this big infinite universe or does that give you anxiety? One of the reasons I love traveling is because I just see this different perspective. Like if I'm up in the sky 
and I'm, you know, I got a window seat and I'm looking out and all these little dots of light, each representing a house, which has multiple people in it. And it's once you get that perspective in 30,000, 40,000 feet, and certainly looking at pictures from outer space, it's like, wow, it's just, it's just, wow. It is. It sets in about how small we are yet, how important we are and the choices that we can make day to day um, within the limits that we have as humans. Well, it's been so cool to talk with you about this. I think that this is such a a great book for people, whether you're feeling anxious or you want to give it to your anxious friend or relative, or just to have more tools for when my anxious family stresses me out and calls me. Now I have some great strategies on how to deal with them. And they're all, they're all definitely going to get copies. So (laughs) the, the book will officially be out October 17th, Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You, Dr. David Rosmarin. And do you have a website that we can send people to, to find out? It is D-H Rosmarin, my last name, R-O-S-M-A-R-I-N, D-H-R-O-S-M-A-R-I-N.com. And you're all welcome to take a look. For those who um, visit the website, there is a free chapter that you're able to download even now. Um, And for those who pre-order, there actually is a second chapter that people get. And I'd love to hear people's feedback about the book. So please uh, tag me on social media and let me know. Reach out to me on whether it's LinkedIn or or Twitter or in any other way. Um, There's also a contact form on the website. You know, your feedback is important. And I want to hear how this book is impacting people's lives. Well, definitely I'll share those links and I'll share links to the book and the show notes of the podcast here. I really enjoyed it and I learned a lot. And thank you for listening to the show today. If you like what you heard, please leave a review. I won't get anxious. I would love it. It would not cause me any stress at all. Leave a review. If you haven't downloaded the free mindbodyspirit.fm mobile app, make sure you do that in the app store for Apple or Android. You can leave a message or comment for any of our podcasts, including including mine, if you'd like, on the open mic feature. So check that out on the mindbodyspirit.fm mobile app. And make sure you check out all the wonderful podcasters we have on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Rosmarin. Thanks for having me on the show. What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation, and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.